Lord Jesus, today we come to honor and glorify you. That's our primary purpose today, is to give you glory, to honor you, to, to remember once again that our eternal lives are secure because of the grace expressed through your life and death and resurrection. We come today to give you thanks and praise, but also to receive your instruction and to submit ourselves obediently to your service. We come asking not so much for you to relieve our difficulties, but for you to use us effectively for your purposes despite our difficulties. We ask that you reshape and reframe our difficulties so that we might see them as an instrument of your choosing. We don't blame you for the bad things that happen to us because we know better than that. We don't, we don't mean to be angry with you about things that you seem to have ignored or neglected. But we do understand, Lord, that you can work all things for your good and for your holy purposes. And so we ask that you would redeem the troubles in our lives in such a way that we would be lights of glory for your holy name. That somehow, even in our troubles, we would praise you and draw others to sing your praises. And so, Lord, where there are those who are sick with birth defects like spina bifida or afflicted with things like cancer, those who are recovering from injuries and sicknesses of all different kinds, they all desire your immediate miraculous healing and all would give you glory when such a thing happens. And yet, more often, Lord, we have witnessed how you use the world, even the unbelieving world, to demonstrate your amazing grace and glory. And so we join with you, Lord, in asking the doctors and the nurses, the scientists, the researchers, the, the, all of the people behind the healing uh, industry to be graced with your Holy Spirit so that any time they work, they see more than themselves. They see more than the sum of their knowledge and experience and even the collective knowledge of their craft. We pray that they might witness your miracles in the way that you enhance their abilities, change their ability to see more clearly and diagnose more accurately. We ask this, Lord, because we believe that in this way you will heal and give yourself the glory you deserve and perhaps lead more, one more unbeliever to your throne of grace. And so, Lord, we glorify you in the Maranatha prayer that you might quickly act, but not so quickly as to leave one out who is on the cusp of salvation. Oh, God, as we pray, we ask you to remember our world, our governments, our times. We pray that there will be peace and reconciliation between nations. We pray that there will be peace and reconciliation in the homes of our families. We pray, Lord, that all would know your grace and then express it in the way that they live their lives. We know this will take a miracle too, Lord. We know that this too is beyond our ken, and yet we are as 
humble servants ready to do whatever you ask us to do to participate in the manifestation of your glory. So hear us, Lord, as we pray. Hear us as we recall all the things that have occurred to us in the various conversations and thoughts of our hearts. Hear us as we put whatever anxieties we have in the altar offering and leave them in your hands. Hear us, Lord, as we pray your spirit to fill us and renew us and inspire us and make us joyful and hopeful. And hear us, Lord, as together we pray the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We will return to our scripture passage from the last week as we continue on with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we're going to pick up at verse 13 for a brief visit to his message from the Mount. It's exciting to think that in about 10 days or so, several people of your church family will be standing on that same Mount, looking at those very hills and that great beautiful lake where Jesus worked so many miracles. But the important thing to know is, is that you don't have to go there to get this. You can get this right now in this place simply by hearing the voice of Jesus as it was recorded by Matthew. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And, if, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I say that out of habit. I grew up with that habit in my church life, even as a Catholic child. And, and, and yet, let's take a moment and just acknowledge that it's important to give thanks to God for the word of God. We give glory to God for the word of God because we are challenged all the time to know God's heart and mind with our hearts and minds. And because God loves us so much, God has given us a book, a oral history, and a consistent expression of God's heart and mind throughout these countless generations now so that we would really be able to know our Lord, our Creator, our great majestic God. 
And so we give glory to God every time we read from the Bible is a way of saying, God, thank you for being so diligent in providing us with a way to know you on a personal level. We forget how important that is sometimes. So when you say glory to God for the word, you can say it like you mean it because it really is a vital thing that we've been given. So Jesus used this whole illustration of salt and light regularly. And when he says if salt loses its saltiness, it's just good for trampling it under your feet. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, what is salt without saltiness? It's dirt. I mean, honestly, take a handful of sand and a handful of salt and, and, and stick your tongue on one and stick your tongue on the other. And you have Jesus' illustration, plain and simple. Salt without saltiness is just dirt. It's just sand. A city on a hill can't be missed. I never really thought about this in a visual until my first trip to the Holy Land. And I know I probably could have figured this out anywhere in, in you know, this country, but for some reason it didn't hit me until one time on this first trip. We were coming back late at night on the, on the trip, and uh, uh, it was a different kind of trip from the one we're going to be making next week. But, but on, that, on this trip, we, we went long hours. We left early in the morning, came back late at night, and we were driving literally across uh, the Jezreel Valley, which is the site of the Battle of Armageddon that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. And, and it's a beautiful, huge, wide-open valley, which is exactly why it would be an excellent place to have the largest battle in the world's history. <laughs> and, uh, but it's dark. At night, there's just no light, except that on the hillsides, you can see places like Nazareth and some of the smaller villages. And wherever you're looking out into the darkness, there will be this cluster of lights on the hill. So it's literally, as I'm driving, you know, riding a bus across the Jezreel Valley in the middle of the night, I looked up on a hill and saw a little village lighted up there on the hill, and I thought, that's it, a city on a hill. If they turned off the lights, you wouldn't even know it was there. But because of the lights, you can see it. Perhaps you've flown in an airplane in the middle of the night over, uh, well, hey, here's another one for you. Uh, I got extra time today, so, you know. And Courtney's not here to throttle me back, you know, so. But uh, uh, I remember when I was on my first trip across the world, I'd never been outside this country, and then I go to Kazakhstan, literally the other side of the planet, and we're flying along in the middle of the night over southern Russia, and there's just blackness down there. There's nothing. It's just black. And then way off in the distance, there's some lights, and the pilot comes on, and he announces... Folks, in case you're wondering what city that is over there with the lights, that's Moscow. You know, now, that was pretty cool to me. It was the closest I've ever been to Moscow, but you know something? You couldn't mistake it. It's just over there in the middle of the darkness of this vast land is this light shining. So when you, you get it, Jesus is saying that you really are a light in the darkness. And if you weren't there, it would be dark. If you weren't the salt, it would be dirt. So you keep that in mind. You know, salt was used in those days and still used these days to preserve meat, especially. Without this salt to preserve it, meat would spoil, especially in those desert environments around where Jesus taught. And so people understood entirely what he meant when he said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the preservative. You're keeping the meat, the flesh, 
from spoiling and going rotten. And, and, you know, do I need to remind you of what an awful smell it is when meat rots? Rotting meat is one of the most horrific, disgusting smells you'll ever encounter. And when he says that you're the, the salt of the earth, he's saying you preserve the earth. You preserve the earth, the flesh, so that it doesn't entirely rot. I didn't even think about including the book of Revelation in today's message, and yet as I was driving over here today and I was reviewing my notes in my mind, I thought, you know, the book of Revelation says pretty plainly that the world goes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> if you'll pardon the colloquialism, it literally is describing a world that's gone to hell. And I mean, in this case, it's turning it over to the enemy and all the forces of the enemy. And I don't know what you believe about the rapture and so forth, and perhaps it's my job to teach you what to believe about the rapture, but the first thing I would say to you about the rapture is, is there are varying interpretations, and no one can say for sure, but I will tell you that for me, I've become convinced and all of my hope uh, regarding the rapture is, is that it would come before the great tribulations that will come to the world. And if I'm correct, and those who believe as I believe are correct, then when the rapture comes, that means that basically all of the salt and light will be withdrawn in an instant from the world. Now, that, I believe, is what precedes the world going to hell, to, to turning into complete and utter chaos. And from the moment that that light and salt is removed from earth, based on what Revelation and the book of Daniel says, from the moment that that light and salt is removed, you see the whole book of Genesis in reverse. You see the whole Genesis creation story shift into reverse and unpacking creation, literally taking the creative order of God and systematically disassembling it until it returns to a, returns to a state of chaos. Now that's, that's my Bible view. Those of you who are in my Bible studies will find this less challenging to grasp because you've heard me opine about these things before. But here's why I mention it to you now. If the salt and light are removed, the world descends into chaos. You make more difference in the world, even if you consider yourself a marginal Christian, than you realize. Even the most minor participant in the kingdom of God, the person who seems to be just just far enough along in their spiritual journey to say, well, I get it. Without a Savior, I'm lost, and Jesus is my Savior. Even that person is one grain of salt and one tiny speck of light. I remember when our oldest son, Alex, was about four years old, we went to a cave in, near Corridon, and the the guide said, I'm going to show you just how dark it is in here. It'll get so dark when I turn off these lights, you won't even be able to see your hand in front of your face. And so we're all standing there in a huddle, and he turns off the lights, and sure enough, it's so dark you can't see the hand in front of your face. And then some little kid from some dark spot that I couldn't see says, hey, I see light. 
And the guy says, no, you can't see any light in here. There's no way you can see any light in here. No, I see light over there. And we all looked, and here's my son Alex's little tennis shoes. They had glow-in-the-dark strips on them. <laughs> Ruined the ranger's discussion all the way. You know, well, okay. But here's the thing. In absolute darkness, even the slightest, tiniest little bit of light is remarkably brilliant in absolute darkness. So a small speck of light. One tiny speck of light in darkness provides some hope. My understanding is, is that night vision goggles essentially work on that principle, that there's always some light in the atmosphere. And so they grab that light and they amplify it so that even in total darkness, or so it seems to our eyes, these night vision goggles can perceive enough light in order to interpret what's being presented in front of them and give you a visual that would otherwise be impossible. So how important is it that we are salt and light? Now, the important thing to keep in mind is, is as we become aware that Jesus expects us to be salt and light, the next imperative is, is that we might get saltier over the years. Now, in my upbringing, a salty person is usually somebody with a colorful vocabulary. I mean, you know, they used to say, oh, you talk like a sailor. You know, I worked in the trucking industry in my career before ministry, and listen, I've heard some salty language, let me tell you. I may have picked up a few words myself and then repented of it, and, you know, better leave that alone and keep going. So you see... <laughs> 25 years of ministry, I've pretty well got that one under control, but you know, under the right circumstances, sometimes even I slip up and then have to repent again. But here's the thing. Saltiness in this case is not about your language, at least not your foul language. It's about you being so evidently different that you add to the flavor of the world. Because what else is salt good for? You know, don't you? Most of you like cooking shows, I'm sure, and most of you like to cook, and I know all of you like to eat. And the best tasting foods have been enhanced with salt. For whatever reason, when you put salt on something, even something that's really loaded with flavor naturally, the right amount of salt will just make the flavor in the food just burst and, and, and pop so that it's even more delicious. It's an amazing thing that salt does. It makes good things better and it makes dull things tastier. It's incredible. And so you're being called by Jesus not only to be salt, but to get saltier. You're asked by Jesus to be the light, but to get brighter all the time. To increase in intensity each day, whether it is your saltiness or your light or the combination of the two. So the question is, is what's inhibiting us from doing that? What prevents us from being salt and light in our world? Understanding that salt and light are metaphors for holiness. You know, we are based in the Methodist tradition, which is John Wesley and his brother George, and, or Charles. Well, I just failed seminary. No, you know what? He had like 19 brothers and sisters. There was probably a George in there. <laughs> no, Charles. Yeah, I was thinking George Whitefield. It's like, I actually, this is actually a product of too much education. I was mixing all kinds of names together. 
John Wesley was great friends with uh, George Whitfield, at least for a while. And uh, George Whitfield is the one that taught Charles Wesley how to preach, uh, John Wesley and Charles, how to preach in the open. They never thought about preaching as something you could do outside of a sanctuary. Uh, and a, a, a preacher named George Whitfield said, or Whitefield said, come on, you can preach anywhere. So I digress, and you got a little brief history lesson. Thing is, Wesley was all about grace, and he was all about sanctification. And he saw grace as being variations of grace in, in line with where you are in, in your spiritual journey. So when you are not seeking God, God is still seeking you. So God's grace is so prevenient. That is, it's always, it's always out there trying to cling to you. But you're like Teflon until you let go of yourself. And then that grace can finally start to get a hold of you and begin to change your life. So that's what he would call prevenient grace. And then he would say that you receive justifying grace, meaning that you have accepted that you need a Savior. And that the only justification you have for asking God to forgive your sins is Jesus. And Jesus gives you that justification as an act of pure unmerited favor, and that's what we call justifying grace. And then you have sanctifying grace, which is a word that simply means continuing to grow up and become more faithful to the Lord every day. And so sanctifying grace is God's work in the Holy Spirit to make you more complete as a child of God after your new birth in Christ every day. So what inhibits us then from growing in salt and light or sanctification, that growing up in the Christian uh, family? And the only answer I can come up with is, is I'm the big inhibitor. I'm the, the obstacle to my spiritual maturity. Because wherever I resist being salt, it's because I don't want the world around me to taste that salt. Wherever I resist being light, it's because I don't want the world around me to experience that light. Let me put it to you in another way. If you work as I did in an environment where there's a lot of salty language, where there's a lot of crude humor, and, and where I remember specifically a, 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 a gentleman who owned one of the companies I worked for was, was uh, very successful. And he was also very devoted to his church. And yet I remember hearing him say to us in a sales meeting one time, if a person's too dumb to know he's been ripped off, he deserves to be ripped off. <laughs> That's the kind of business I worked in in those days back in the 80s. And I remember finding that to be a huge contradiction that really troubled me. And so I saw myself threatened by this environment, but at the same time more challenged than ever to be salt and light in my environment. And while I struggled with the temptations that come with being 20-something and being a bit naive, I eventually came to realize that I didn't want to be changed by them, and if there was anything I should do is to see them changed by me. And what I found was is that there were times when their jokes, depending on who they were, would change when I walked in the room, and it was embarrassing for me. But at the same time, I can reflect on it now with the maturity of my present age and realize that they changed the jokes because they respected my salt and light. 
And they saw that I didn't descend to the same depths that they did. They saw that I chose not to use the language they used. I chose not to operate according to the company's ethics in this, in this particular case. I chose not to be crude and lewd in my humor and, and I just, and, and I, didn't, I didn't preach to anybody. I never said to anybody, you know, y'all need Jesus. You know, I didn't do anything like that. I just chose not to do what was status quo in that working environment. And by virtue of being, well, somewhat virtuous in comparison, they recognized that there was something a little different about me and in a weird way were respecting it by toning it down in my presence. I didn't recognize it at the time and I was even threatened by it. I felt like I wasn't accepted. I felt like an outsider. But now I can look back and realize that that's exactly what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to be an outsider. So with that in mind, I want to finish today's message by reading to you. And I, I really sometimes find that I can't possibly, I'll be doing my research for the message, and I can't possibly tell you what Scripture says so beautifully, so why interpret it myself when I can just share what the Scripture says to you? So the Apostle Paul, Apostle to us Gentiles, says in chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans, and by the way, if you haven't figured it out, we're Rome, you know. If you want to know where Rome is today, the Rome of the Bible, that's America. It's the Western world. This is Rome, so he's writing to us. Listen to what he says, Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read the whole chapter, and this will be the end of the message. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Yet let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.